Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the second of three Northern lectures by our eighth SR Northern Fellow, Corinna Lim. Following her lecture, Corinna will be taking questions during a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be led by Lin Su Ling, Executive Editor at CNA Digital. First, I would like to go over some housekeeping rules before the event. This live stream is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded to our website and our social media platforms after the event. Please submit your comments and questions at any course throughout, at any time throughout the course of this event. And we'll try to answer as many questions as possible during the Q&A session. We would also like to hear your feedback and your views of the event. There'll be a link in the feed later, which you can click to submit your feedback. And so without further ado, I would like to invite Corinna Lim to begin her second lecture, The Caring Economy. Corinna, please. We, the citizens of Singapore, pledge ourselves as one united people, regardless of race, language, religion, or gender, to build a democratic society based on justice and equality, so as to achieve happiness, prosperity, and progress for our nation. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming to my second lecture. I am really glad that you are here. I'm happy to report that from my first lecture, my revised version of the pledge, which I, which I just recited, incorporating gender, was well received by the media as a way of imprinting gender equality into our collective consciousness. I go further in this lecture to talk about our continuing project to build a just and equal society to achieve happiness, prosperity, and progress foundation, the second part of our pledge. Today, we zoom in on the issues of caregiving, work, fertility, aging, and gender. A big thank you to the people who left very positive feedback for lecture one. Many of you said you were inspired by the stories of our early women's rights activists and that you liked my gender equality flower. So here it is again as a reminder of the six core dimensions of gender equality represented by the colorful petals and the gender norms that lie at the heart of the flower. In this lecture, I will zero in on the dark blue petal at the bottom of the flower. Equal distribution of unpaid housework and caregiving. Why? First, because it is a laggard and much more needs to be done. Second, and more importantly, it is holding back women's progress in other areas, especially in the economy and leadership dimensions, the green and light blue petals. And third, because this might just help Singapore to reverse its declining fertility rate. The main norm we have to change is this idea that men should be the primary breadwinner and women the primary caregiver of the family. Caregiving for our young and old 
is central to three important issues. Our low fertility rate, women leaving the workforce prematurely, and care for our aging population. These are super important issues for Singapore, and I will be dealing with each of them in turn. Getting men to share the care more equally at home is part of the solution. And I believe many men are ready and want to do this. With the right laws and support from employers, we can make this happen. But of course, it takes more than gender equality in the family to support our families' caregiving needs. President Joe Biden, in the first 100 days of his presidency, released a massive infrastructure proposal that included family leave, investments in childcare and at-home care for the elderly and disabled, together with rebuilding crumbling roads and bridges. What was inspiring to me was the idea that childcare elder care, cooking and cleaning were seen to be just as vital to the functioning of the economy as roads and bridges. Care work is infrastructure. What Singapore needs is a robust care infrastructure to support our families' care needs, both childcare and elder care. And without a strong care infrastructure, our economy and our society just won't tick. That's why I have titled this talk, The Caring Economy. First, let me start with a teaser for all of you. Who cooked Adam Smith's dinner? I think that many of you would have heard of Adam Smith, also known as the father of capitalism. You might have studied him and his works. In his seminal book titled, the Wealth of Nations, written in 1776, Adam Smith used the answer to the question of who cooked his dinner to formulate his thesis of capitalism. Well, you ask me, what did Adam Smith have for dinner? Well, his dinner was bread, beer, and steak. So the answer to this question was the baker, the brewer, and the butcher. And why did they do it? Because of their own self-interest which gave rise to what he called the invisible hand that drives capitalist markets. But actually, Adam Smith overlooked something really important, which is this. He forgot his mother, Margaret Douglas. Adam Smith lived most of his life with his mother, Margaret, who cared for him and their home. Margaret cooked and served the steak, but she's completely left out from the picture, together with the wives of the baker, the brewer, and the butcher. Unfortunately, this incomplete picture of how a capitalist society operates has become the paradigm of economic life. Family care work that is generally carried out by women doesn't get counted. And so it doesn't count. It doesn't count in the GDP and continues to be overlooked and undervalued by policy makers. Yet capitalism depends on this very work. Without people caring for the workers, the economy would collapse. We caught 
a glimpse of this when schools and childcare closed during the lockdown. Care and work then collided under one roof, people's homes. Without childcare, parents were struggling to get anything else done with their kids at home. Many men also realized for the first time how much caregiving and housework their wives were doing on top of their paid work. The point is, if we don't see the caregiving being done because we are outside working or it is taken care of by someone else, we may just not realize how much work there is and how important it is. The undervaluing of family care is very much at the heart of this lecture. Next, let me move to the topic of Singapore's abysmally low fertility rate. Singapore's total fertility rate, or TFR, is today at an all-time low. 1.10 children per woman. Replacement rate is 2.1. All developed countries have gone below 2.1, but not as low as us. Lower fertility rate isn't necessarily all bad. It's partly a signal of how women and men are finding fulfillment in other areas beyond raising a family. But our TFR at 1.10 is considered to be dangerously low. Look at the slide which our then DPM, Teo Chui Hien, presented to Parliament in 2013. The TFR then was 1.2, slightly above what it is today. And this slide shows that in just two generations, we will have one third of the Singaporeans that we have today. So this is why TFR is an existential issue for Singapore. The main concern to address is this. How do we support the people who want kids to fulfill their parenthood aspirations. The government's 2016 Marriage and Parenthood Survey showed that 92% of married couples would like to have at least two kids. 37% did not achieve their ideal. And this is despite the government efforts to support and promote marriage and parenthood. There are also people who have decided not to get married, right? Or they are, you know, they're not attracted to get married and have kids, right? So we are also concerned about that group of people. The government's annual spending on pronatal measures has increased progressively by five times from 500 million in 2001 to 2.5 billion in 2017. You can see this in the black bars. And yet the TFR, total fertility rate, represented by the pink line, continues to fall even as we spend to try to stem that fall. And it fell further in 2020 to 1.1. So why did the pronatal measures not work? The short answer is that the measures were just not sufficient to address the reasons why couples 
didn't have as many kids as they wished. They said, too expensive, too stressful, too difficult to manage work and family demands. These were the reasons given by couples in a 2016 government survey. So the issue is not just money. It's also about time, stress, and the actual work of giving care. The pronatal incentives were mainly in the form of family leave and monetary incentives in the form of baby bonuses, tax breaks, and subsidies for preschool. Leave is essential, of course, and money is always welcome. But the actual burden of caregiving, especially the burden on mothers, was still not addressed. Let me take a sip of water. So let me move to the related issue of women leaving the workforce prematurely. As I said in the last lecture, girls have overtaken boys in education. Girls do better in schools and on average have better educational qualifications. But what happens when women and men enter the workforce? This slide shows the male and female participation rates in the workforce across age groups. In other words, what percentage of men are working and what percentage of women are working? Blue is female, the green line is male. Let's look at the green male line first. What we see is that between the ages 25 to 54, Close to 100% of men are in the workforce. They start retiring in their mid-50s. Now look at the blue female line. Behaves very differently. From the ages of 20, 20 to 29, the blue and the green lines run together. Women no different from the men. And then the blue line peaks at about 90% in the 25 to 29 age group, and from 30 to 34, it starts to go downhill. What do you think happens at 30 to 34? If you guessed childbirth, you are absolutely right. The median age of first-time mothers is 30.6 years old. So unlike men, Women's ability to work is hampered by child rearing. This pattern isn't too surprising. The same happens in many OECD countries. Women stop working when they become mothers. But the difference is that for many OECD countries, including Japan and Korea, women return to the workforce after the children go to school at about you know, when they are about 35 to 40 years old. Their woman's, their woman's curve is in the shape of an M. The curve goes down, but it goes up, and then down again when they retire. And for Singapore, it's just downhill all the way. Why is there no M curve for Singapore? Why don't our women return to work after their kids start primary school. 
I have not seen any direct research on this, but we can make some intelligent guesses. First, PSLE. Women take time off to ensure their kids do well in primary school. So even as some women return, some get out. Then, aging parents. Women then take time off to look after their aging parents. This would be women who are in their 40s to 50s. And finally, ageism, which makes it hard for women and men to go back to the workforce at an older age after their family responsibilities are done. So how does our labor force participation rate fare against other developed countries? This slide shows how Singapore's ratio of female to male labor force participation compares to all other OECD countries. Right? We want the number to be 100%. That means the percentage of women working is the same as the percentage of men working. Singapore is represented by the red line. And we are not top of the class by any means. We're not very behind, but we are not in the top half. At 79%, we are just slightly better than Japan and Korea, the two green lines to the left of the red. And we are quite far behind the best countries, Sweden and Norway, by about 10%. Women dropping out of the labor force is a waste of human potential especially given that on average, Singapore women are more highly educated than men. So we must try to do better. The issues of women's workforce participation and Singapore's low fertility rates boil down to one thing, the expectation that women who are now educated and have careers will continue to bear the brunt of the caregiving burden, as they did in the past. This expectation sets up a situation where women have to choose between their careers and their children. Some give up their careers for family. Others choose career over family. Either way, it's not ideal for Singapore. We end up with both low fertility and women leaving the workforce prematurely. Many places, including Korea, Taiwan, Japan, face similar problems. Can we have, can women have both career and kids? Countries like Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Finland have shown that it is possible with the right family support and care policies, a country can have it all high fertility, working mothers, a competitive economy, and also very happy citizens. You know the Nordics always top the charts for happiness. So the experience of these countries show that there are two things that governments can do to increase fertility and women's workforce participation. The first, embed gender equality into laws and policies in particular, use parental leave policies to nudge husbands to be more active fathers, what I call the gender equality solution. The second, build a robust 
care infrastructure to support all families' caregiving needs. We need to do both. Let's look at the gender equality solution first. The Nordic experience has shown that the best way to change societal norms on parenting is to give men and women equal parenting leave. If men don't take their leave, they will lose it. So many take it and end up loving it. As the Swedish ambassador to Singapore said to me during a gender equality discussion, no man ever regrets it. The ambassador has four kids and he took daddy days for all of them up to as much as 60 days. So the norms have changed so much in Sweden that fathers who don't take paternity leave are frowned upon. Research has shown that dads who are actively involved in the early months of their kids' lives are much more likely to be active fathers in later years. So be, we have to be strategic to target the early years. These men also share domestic work and paid work more equitably with their partners beyond the paternity leave period. So what's the paternity leave situation in Singapore? As part of its pronatal measures, Singapore extended paternity leave to two weeks in 2017. It was one week and then it was extended to two weeks in 2017. And last year, 53% of men took their leave. To me, this is a positive sign of how social norms are changing quite rapidly. These days, it's quite common to see dads walking around with their kids strapped onto their chest or jogging, cycling, going to the store with their kids in hand. No moms in sight. More, more fathers have become active parents, although moms still do the bulk of the work at home. This particular pronatal strategy is definitely worth pursuing because it benefits families directly and also creates a more gender equal and pro-family culture in the long run. Now, two weeks paternity leave was a good start, but I think of it as a pilot. It is insufficient for fathers who really want to be equal parents. How much can a person do in two weeks? That might just be enough time for fathers to get the hang of things. It's really not so easy to be supporting baby and, and your wife during this period, and it does take some time to understand what the role is. So that's like orientation. We see companies like Aviva, Diageo, and HP voluntarily giving four months paternity leave to their male employees in Singapore. They understand that this is what their male employees want, and it is a good way to attract and retain talent. I also spoke to two parents, Ken and Liz, about their experience with paternity leave, uh, um, early parenting. Ken is the father of a 10-year-old boy. He shared his parenting experience about why men should have longer paternity leave. He said to me, when I became a father, I relished being a freelancer because I had flexible hours that allowed me to spend a lot of time with my son and assume my rightful half of childcare duties. At the same time, I wondered about other fathers, fathers who had full-time jobs, but only scanned paternity leave 
I know that even if I was working as a full-time employee in a company, I would want to have as much paid leave for childcare as any new mother. My body, unlike my wife's, did not need physical healing and regeneration for breastfeeding after my son's birth. Therefore, it was all the more important to me that I could do the diaper changing, share in the sleepless nights through bottle feeding, and as my son grew older, spend as much time with him as possible. Today, Ken enjoys a wonderful relationship with his son. He tells me, in many ways, my son is as close to me, if not closer, than to his mom. Sometimes when he's troubled, he'll come to me first. He looks to me for comfort and play, but also for the conventional mom things. Preparing food, setting him to soccer classes, story and bedtime routine. Ken's wish list for policy changes include paid paternity leave equal to what mothers have and unisex toddler stations or diaper changing facilities in men's toilets, he's had to change his son on top of a wet wiped toilet seat too many times. Liz is the mother of a five month old baby. She's my colleague. She shared the importance of having the support of a partner. She says, one obstacle I face is the unequal amount of parental leave that my partner and I have. As he only had two weeks, I gave him my shareable month. So he had a total of 1.5 months and I had three months. I had a condition where I feel a burst of negative emotions right before breastfeeding. And having my partner's presence at home at that time was really helpful for me to cope. My partner had to return to work during my maternity leave, which meant I had to do things like lifting the baby out of the cot myself, going against my physiotherapist's advice to not exert myself three months post-C-section. Now, while not every man is ready to take more than two weeks of paternity leave, our policies should support those who are keen to do so. And those who are not going to take it, so be it. It's their loss. The other unsatisfactory issue about the current leave is the disparity between mother's and father's leave. Currently, moms have four months maternity leave and dads have two weeks. This huge disparity reinforces the idea that child rearing is primarily the mom's role. It goes against the idea of gender equality and also hurts women's career prospects. Women will not be equal leaders or in the workplace unless men assume roles as equal or primary caregivers. So the Gender Equality Review presents us with a wonderful opportunity to update our paternity leave provisions. Ultimately, we should aim for a situation where all parents have the same amount of parenting leave, regardless of gender. If moms have four months, dads should have four months too. 
This needs long-term consideration and planning, as employers will be greatly impacted by this. So in the meantime, here is my recommendation to equalize paternity leave as part of the gender equality review, so it can be done more quickly. Here's the proposal. Increase father's entitlement from two weeks to three months. Maintain mother's leave at four months. Cap the total paid leave for the family at six months. What this means is that parents can decide for themselves. If they want to do 50-50, they can do that. Three months for moms and three months for dads. Or 60-40, four months, four months for moms and two months for dads. And although the current uh, leave situation allows men to share women's leave, no mom wants to give up, or very, very few moms give up their last month. This was one of them. Because actually three months isn't, may not be enough right, for them to recover. So, um, and it is their leave. So for them to share their, their entitlement is difficult. But if mom and dad both had their own leave and they just need to decide who's going to take how much, then it's much more likely than they're likely to do 50-50. Uh, now, I'm a huge advocate of active fatherhood for many reasons, aside from the ones that I've shared. Here are a few more. First, it's great for kids. When fathers were more involved, research shows that kids did better in schools. They were more empathetic, had higher self-esteem and life satisfaction. And when they grew up, they didn't get into as much trouble and were less likely to engage in substance abuse. Secondly, it's great for dads too. Fatherhood increases self-esteem and sense of purpose in life. Dads take their health more seriously and reduce risk-taking behaviors. And thirdly, it role models gender equality for our next generation. Even if we don't achieve gender equality in this generation, the next generation will be more gender equal. When women went out to work, it changed the way that their children thought about women's roles in society. In the same way, men doing more at home will change the way that our children sees men's role in society. In line with the idea that fathers should be equal parents or sometimes even stay-at-home parents, we should also amend the Women's Charter to equalize men's rights to seek maintenance from their wives. Currently, Section 69 of the Women's Charter only allows husbands to apply for maintenance from their wives if they are incapacitated. Wives have an unfettered right to apply for maintenance from their husbands. They don't have to be incapacitated. This provision reflects the old patriarchal norm that men were the primary caregivers and had a duty to maintain their wives. It is time to update this provision and give men the same rights as women to apply for maintenance. 
And when husbands do apply for maintenance, the courts can make that final decision on whether it is fair to award this. As the Nordic experience has shown, equal parenting policies are effective in setting more egalitarian gender norms in a family. Now, in Sweden these days, it's common to see latte papas. This is an affectionate term for groups of dads who push their prams, go to a cafe and have a latte. And I can't wait for the day when kopi papas become a thing in Singapore. Let's move on to the second solution, building a robust care infra infrastructure to ease the burden on women. Now, this refers to the state providing public childcare services. In the late 70s, when the government realized that family caregiving was hindering women's participation in the workforce, it launched the Foreign Maid Scheme to enable families to employ foreign domestic workers. At this point, the state didn't invest in building public childcare for all families. But the private market saw this opportunity and seized it, offering a range of services which cost as much as $2,000 per child at the high end. To me, this is not the usual Singapore way of doing things. Our excellent social infrastructure in education, housing, healthcare, and transport has been the cornerstone of our economic success. The state provided high-quality flats, facilities, and services to ensure that the basic needs of all Singaporeans were met. The private market exists, but it's secondary. Why didn't the government, at first instance, not invest in building a strong childcare infrastructure in the same way that it built a strong education system? And why did the government start aggressively building the childcare infrastructure only after 2012, less than a decade ago, when it has been desperately trying to increase total fertility rates for more than three decades. Why was there a delay of 20 years to build childcare? I've been researching and pondering about this in the last few months, and in my analysis, there are three reasons for this. Let's go back to the Adam Smith story. Unpaid care work is overlooked and undervalued in our capitalist system. Male decision makers especially may not realize how important childcare is for women to work. Lack of childcare doesn't impact men's work as much as women's. Second, patriarchal thinking. Women are supposed to do the housework and take care of the family. That's the patriarchal idea. So if women can't handle those duties, then pay another woman, a migrant domestic worker, to do this for low wages. No need to provide public services. And the third reason is an elitist or eugenic 
uh, way of thinking. Our early leaders, in particular, Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew, was fixated on the elitist idea that intelligence is an inheritable trait. So this idea led the government to introduce the Graduate Mother Scheme in 1984 to incentivize graduate moms to have kids. Under the scheme, children of graduate mothers got priority admission to schools. The moms got tax breaks. But on the flip side, low-income and poorly educated couples were discouraged from having kids. They were paid $10,000 to stop at two kids. This graduate mother scheme was so unpopular, it was reversed the next year. However, this elitist way of thinking didn't go away. Since the government was not keen for less educated families to have more kids, there wasn't a need to provide childcare for, for them. Better off families could afford their own domestic workers and to pay for private childcare. Private solutions may seem very attractive. It saves the government from having to take on the burden of managing or providing these services. However, relying on the market to provide solutions to fulfill basic human needs like childcare is deeply concerning as it increases social inequality. Certainly in AWARE's 2018 research report, why are you not working? The lack of accessible preschool was one of the reasons why low-income mothers were not working. It is only in 2013 that the government really focused its attention on childcare provision when it set up the Early Childhood Development Agency, ETA. Since then, the state has made great progress in building the preschool infrastructure, including improving the quality of preschool services, making it more affordable and accessible, creating the Kid Start program to support the healthy development of kids from low-income families. Families who now earn less than $2,500 a month can, now, can pay as little as $3 a month for full-day childcare after subsidies. And in 2017, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong announced that the government will double its annual spending on the preschool sector to $1.7 billion in 2022. A heavy investment, but worthwhile and necessary, said PM Lee. So from this graph, you can see how Singapore has increased its annual spending on preschool by about five months, by about five times from 2012. From, 20, from 360 million, it went up to 1.7 billion a decade later. And the latest indications are that government-supported preschool will be able to meet at least 80% of families' needs by 2025. That's the Singapore way. We had a late start, and there's still some catching up to do. So let me go back to my colleague Liz, Right, who um, shared also about her search for infant care. Even as I speak, Liz is desperately searching for infant care for her five-month-old baby because she wants to go back to work. 
She's anxious and stressed as she's used up all of her maternity leave, yet she can't get back to work until she can get full-day infant care for her daughter. She's been on the waiting list of 10 nearby preschool centres. She would go on more, but this is the maximum number of waiting lists that she's allowed to be on. Her family monthly household income is about $7,000. Sparkle Tots is the most affordable centre. After subsidies, it will cost the family $480, about 7% of the income. One other centre has space in September, five months from the time she applied, but they are higher end and charge $960 per month. That's 13% of the family income. It's actually beyond the couple's budget, but they may have no choice. So many couples today face this predicament with securing infant care, availability and cost. Hopefully this situation too will get better by 2025. Now aside from providing more affordable preschool places, there are other urgent priorities to work on. First, we don't have enough childcare teachers as the pay and recognition aren't great. Second, childcare fees are still much higher than primary school. The lowest rate for full day care, right, and this is not infant but childcare, is about $300 compared to primary school fees at $15. Also, the fees should not depend on whether the mother is working or not. Currently, the case is that working mothers pay a lower fee. It is ironic because and it, and it, it is because childcare was designed originally as a scheme to support working mothers. Childcare really should be a public good that is available to every single child. So working and non-working parents should be paying the same. Third, we also need to enable our preschools to cater to kids with special needs. This is a growing problem in Singapore. There's an increase in the number of kids with de developmental problems such as autism, behavioral issues, and speech delays. Currently, the early intervention programs are outside the preschools. So this makes it really challenging for parents who have to transfer their kids from one place to another in the middle of the workday. I am really, really glad to see the government's current focus and investment on developing the preschool infrastructure. It is critical. And the good news is that the research does show that the availability of formal childcare by lowering the care burden, positively influences parents' decisions to have kids. So hopefully, good access to quality childcare will improve fertility rates. And even if it doesn't, our families and kids really need it. So far, I've been focusing on the caregiving infrastructure for children. The education system is a separate but related system. It used to be a great public system, but these days parents spend a lot of money on tuition to help their kids do well in PSLE. In 2018, Singapore households spent $1.4 billion on tuition. Not all of this is for PSLE, but we know that nothing beats the PSLE in terms of parental involvement and tuition. The upshot of this is 
that primary school now has become a public come private system that amplifies inequality. Rich kids get tuition in every subject. Poor families scrounge around for free tuition in the subjects they need help in. Middle class families give tuition to the kids for the subjects they are weak in. So it does promote inequality. The PSLE system has also created a huge amount of unpleasant care labour for parents. Parents spend a lot of time searching for the best tutors, ferrying kids here and there, coordinating timetables, nagging and scolding their children, and getting upset with each other because it is all so stressful. It's now quite normal for one parent, usually mom, to resign from her job or take one year off to support her kids through PSLE. A mother whose child was struggling at primary five told me that she quit her job as she felt that she would not be able to live with herself if her child did poorly and she had not done everything she possibly could to support him because the stakes they see as very high. It's heartbreaking to hear these stories. This is not what childhood and parenthood should be about. The PSLE system is clearly not working. This is one of the reasons why I think that our women's labor force participation curve does not have an M shape. Research from East Asia has also shown a negative correlation between total fertility rate and house household spending on education. There have been calls to abolish PSLE. I strongly support those calls that we abolish or overhaul the system. And in assessing the system, I hope that policymakers will take into account the impact of PSLE on women, our economy, fertility, fertility rates, and social inequality. There must be less costly ways to provide our children with a good education. Will we be able to successfully reverse our fertility rate if we implement the gender equality solution, take away PSLE, and make high quality preschool universal? I wish I could guarantee this. I know these solutions will help many families and that it may make it more feasible for people to have kids. But we also have new challenges ahead of us. Climate change. Christian and his partner, Heng Yen, are recent graduates. They are in their mid-twenties and part of the climate justice group, SG Climate Rally. They are waiting excitedly for their BTO flat which should be ready by 2023. But they've decided not to have any kids for this reason. My partner and I recognize that this world is rapidly deteriorating, both socio-politically and ecologically. The science shows us that we are teetering on the edge of no return with more diseases, natural disasters, and unpredictable changes on the horizon. Recognizing this reality, the conversation around having a child becomes quite non-negotiable for us.
We cannot knowingly bring a child into this literal and metaphorical burning world. Even though it sounds somewhat depressing, it is important to know what some members of the younger generation are thinking and to hear their concerns. Singapore and the world has to really think about how people can thrive without overburdening our planet, without having to rely on economic models that are dependent on population growth. It is ironic I'm st standing here and talking about how we can increase our fertility when population growth is actually one of the problems that have led to climate change. I hope that this will be the subject of another SR Northern Fellowship. Let's move on to another topic, our aging population. Let me ask you a question. Assuming good health, if you could choose to live either till 64 or 84, what would you choose? This is a no-brainer, right? Most people would choose to live till 84. And that is one of the remarkable benefits of Singapore's development in the last 60 years. Singaporeans are living longer than almost any other nationality. The average life expectancy in 1957 was 64. And today, it is 84. We gained an extra 20 years lease of life. 84 years is the average life expectancy in 2020, which means that many of us alive today may live to beyond 90 years old. Our longevity is certainly something to celebrate and can be a huge boost to our economy. Older individuals today are generally healthier and wealthier than those in past generations. And they seek to remain engaged and relevant for years beyond the retirement age. As you know from my last lecture, my feminist mother, Dr. Komal Jitsoin, is 79 and still practices as an orthopedic surgeon. My real mother, June Lim, is also 79 and she still enjoys working as a housing agent. They both do more strenuous workouts than me. I tell them jokingly, when I grow up, I want to be like them. Older workers offer valuable experience and talent. They provide perspective, experience, stability, and through their insights, they can serve as mentors and role models to younger counterparts. I have been the beneficiary of many wiser mentors. Studies have found that the productivity of both older and younger workers is higher in companies with mixed age work teams. Also, an aging population opens up new markets as older people will have different needs. So if managed well, our aging population may indeed be our only increasing natural resource. But usually, when people talk about aging and our aging population, it's with a sense of dread, apprehension, and anxiety. The images that we associate in our mind with aging are those of illness, disability, vulnerability, and the sacrifices and burden of caregiving. When we think about the aging of our older relatives, we worry about the impact it may have on our lives if they should fall sick or become disabled? Will we be able to cope with our own families, our jobs, and caregiving? 
Do we have to change our living arrangements? Can we afford the care that our loved ones need? In short, the ageing population offers both opportunities and challenges. Here's the thing though. We can only reap the benefits of the gifts of longevity if we have a strong care infrastructure to support our ageing population's needs. In other words, we need to meet the challenges before we can benefit from longevity. But more than that, if we fail to meet the challenges, longevity becomes a liability for our economy and society. So the stakes are high. Meet the challenges, get a bonus. Don't meet the challenges, not just you don't get the bonus, it becomes a liability. So it's a bit different from children. With children, if we don't have a strong care infrastructure, not enough support, people just won't have babies. With older persons, that is not an option. Many of us have two parents, and we have no choice, and we would want to care for them. So if our parents are unable to cope on their own, and if we have to, we will make other adjustments, like give up work at 50. This le le then leads to further problems down the road for caregivers and society. No longevity benefits, just liabilities. With those things in mind, let me talk about the current infrastructure of elder care. The question is, does our current infrastructure support the people who need care and the people who give care to enable us to benefit from longevity? From my perspective, the answer is not yet. I am actually really worried about the current pace and trajectory of the development of our elder care infrastructure. Will we get there? And will we get there soon enough? Here's why I'm worried. Our current national strategy is to have people age at home, what we call aging in place, rather than in, in institutions. Of course, all of us want that, right? Research shows that in most families in Singapore, this home care is given by a family member, usually female, supported by a migrant domestic worker. Sounds familiar, right? That was our child care strategy too. Of course, not every family can afford to hire a domestic worker, nor are all domestic workers fit to look after specific elder elder needs and conditions like dementia and stroke. Currently, the family carers have inadequate public support. For example, there isn't even a single day of mandated elder care paid leave in Singapore. For childcare, each parent is given six days of paid leave. Secondly, there are formal services like daycare centres and home care services, which are supposed to support family caregivers. However, families do not use this because they are too expensive. Based on Lian Foundation's report, Care Where You Are, a family of three 
with a household income of about $8,000 would have to spend nearly one-third of its income on elder care. Overall, the out-of-pocket expenses that families have to pay are much more than for childcare. There's also a severe shortage of nursing homes and respite care is difficult to access. All this is being improved, but currently the situation is not good. So AWARE's research in this area shows the following trends emerging, right, as a result of, of the shortages. Many family members, usually women, are giving up their jobs to take care of their relatives. These family caregivers are mostly in their 50s. They're not just disadvantaged by their loss of income and ongoing expenses during this period of full-time caregiving. Many of them disrupted their careers before they built up enough savings for themselves when they grow old. Many of them are single daughters. So they do need to return to the workforce, but will face the issues of loss of confidence, workplace ageism, and they're not having kept up with technological change. It will be extremely difficult for them to return to work when they are in their late 50s. Also, many of the family caregivers and domestic workers we interviewed were suffering from prolonged stress and fatigue. Four hours of sleep every night on a prolonged period is exhausting. Many ex exhibited signs of caregiver burnout. Once again, we undervalue care and are not investing enough to build a robust elder care infrastructure. In the case of elder care, there, I think there might be also ageist biases in society, that elders are over the hill and economically provide poor returns on investment. Some people think if money is limited, invest in kids and compromise elder care. If you did think this, I hope that my earlier statements have shown why we need to invest in both for our economy to reap the benefits of our human capital. If we don't do this, our economy and workforce will suffer. And when I say build a care infrastructure, I don't mean that it has to be a HDB model where the government owns everything. The private sector will have a role to play. The government must be involved to oversee, fund, manage as necessary to ensure that the services are universally accessible to all. So it could be like our education model or, ch or childcare model. If money is not enough, we either find money from other sources or raise taxes or the insurance, the long-term insurance. We have been too conservative in our long-term care investments. Just to illustrate, about eight years ago, Singapore started to build more nursing homes because we really need them. There were calls from the public to provide single or twin rooms. And in the end, the government decided on dorm-style layouts of six to eight beds. Here's a photo of the nursing home. What do you think? Would you like to spend your last years here or put your parents in this nursing home? 
Some people that I showed this photo to thought this was a hospital. I have not found anyone who, like, who would like to spend their last years here if they had a choice. It seems short-sighted to try to save money and build dorm-style nursing homes that people are averse to. With this as the only other alternative, family caregivers feel they have no choice but to take care of the seniors at home even when they are not in the best position to do so. So I strongly, strongly urge the government to review its approach to long-term care. There is a lot at stake for the economy and our society if we don't invest enough and soon enough to support our family caregivers. It takes time to build up affordable home care services, centre-based care, nursing homes, paid leave, and a much wide, wider array of residential options. So we should start investing more now and not scramble to do this 10 or 20 years down the road as we did with childcare. It may call for more taxes, but perhaps people will accept the need for higher taxes if they understand how they and their, and their families can benefit. More funding in this area also offers opportunities for the marketplace to innovate technological solutions and services. Given the large cohort of seniors, the lack of adequate infrastructure will cause a lot of pain in the community. To help us imagine what good public care infrastructure looks like, here is a short video of a government-funded nursing home in Japan. It's, it is an extract from the Lian Foundation's very helpful Genki Kaki series, where they brought two Singapore caregivers to Japan to find out how Japan does elder care. Japan grew older, uh, grew older faster than us, so they've had many more years uh, in getting it right. Uh, so, you know, this is their experience after many more years of being old. Let's watch the video. We arrived, we met Saito-san. もう<笑><笑> は皆さん、えっと、一人一人の個室に全員だって。ま、そういった方にですね、あの、こう身体拘束、体を縛ったりしないためにえっと、こういうセンサーを内蔵します。こちらの施設ではどんな状態の方でもあの必ず昼間はあのこちらのトイレに座っていただくようにしています。どうだ
I think the other big difference I find between Singapore and Japan, not just the staff, but even the residents appear to be a lot happier and friendly towards each other. She was singing away, she was tapping her hands on her thigh to the rhythm, so I think she's a very happy, contented person. Although she's got no family, and it must be something that the home has done to cheer her, for her to forget her, her loneliness or, you know. This is the gold standard for public nursing homes. Very high quality and professional and inspires confidence that seniors will be treated with dignity and comfort. That's what I imagine good quality long-term care should look like. It's important for Singapore to think about what's the level of provision that we should ensure for everybody. What is our HDB standard for nursing homes and home care services? What level of privacy and comfort will assure people that their dignity will be respected right up till the end. The dorm-style nursing home does not seem to meet people's expectations. The Japanese model is eye-opening. Singapore is on its way to becoming one of the oldest countries in the world. Let's build elder care systems that we can be really proud of. Systems that speak to who we want to be as people. Decent, caring, compassionate, respectful of our seniors. In this lecture, I've covered issues that are most pertinent today to care and families and provided recommendations for policy changes that can be effected as part of the gender equality review or in the near future. If we succeeded, in building a caring economy, what would our society look like in 2050? Come with me as we journey into the future. The year is 2050. Dads are loving being fathers. They can't get enough of it. Fathers talk about how they see life differently. They talk about how they want to be the best person they can be for their kids. We see a lot more children these days. The fertility rate has turned the corner. Our TFR is now at 1.25. Work changed a lot because of the pandemic. Working from home became the norm. It became easier for parents to balance work and family. Good thing that happened, as it has become really difficult and expensive to hire domestic workers. Many families then decided they could do without a live-in domestic worker. Also now we have a great childcare system. Childcare quality improved every year. Kids with disabilities now attend the same childcare as other kids. Singapore is now among the top, for, top five for childcare systems in the world. Haha, <laughs> we always have to be top 10. Our long-term care is now number two in the world, next to Japan. We can be really proud of that because we came a long way. Children are enjoying school exams. No more PSLE. Primary school is more fun. The kids also say that's new pledge, you know, with the word gender in it. 
Singapore has become a silver-haired paradise. Silver is in. Silver-haired men and women everywhere, economically active, contributing in many ways, from the cabinet to the boardroom, malls, fast food counters, and new community centres. Also, the government did a great job in making it easy for seniors like me to travel everywhere easily and for free. Their project to make Singapore a silver-haired paradise worked really well. I wrote this from my HDB studio apartment in the Yishun HDB retirement village. Many of my friends also moved here as well. It's great because we can look out for each other. So that's what I see of the Singapore of 2050. Do you think this is possible? It's important to be able to dream of the society that we want for ourselves. Now let's all work to make that dream come true. This brings me to the end of my second lecture. It's been a journey writing this paper. And at the end, I found myself left with one final thought. That to establish gender equality as a fundamental value, we need also to establish care and compassion as values that define the Singaporean. I hope that this lecture has given you much food for thought and look forward to all your questions. The third lecture is called Reset, Men, Women, Violence. I will take a compassionate look at men and masculinity, the impact of shifting gender norms caused by our internet generation on boys and girls. We'll look at domestic and sexual violence and what our various institutions, families, schools, workplaces, even national service can do to build a more gender equal, caring and respectful culture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Karina. Uh, I'd ask that everyone keep submitting your comments and questions. We'll now be shifting to the Q&A session of this lecture. May I now invite Lin Su Ling, Executive Editor at CNA Digital, to start the Q&A session. Hi, I'm Lin Su Ling, and welcome to the Q&A section of Karina's second lecture. Um, very honoured to be here, Karina. I first met you um, at the National Youth Council Dialogue and we were on separate panels, but it was both looking at diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Yes, I remember that. Many big questions were asked. Um, how much of family responsibilities should people leave at the door when they get to work? Um, and is work-life integration a one-way street? But that was in 2018, and a great deal has happened since then, not least a raging pandemic. And we were reminded of it today um, when tightened measures were announced, no dining out, group sizes being reduced. So as the moderator, I would exercise my right to ask you the first question, which is, could you talk a little bit about COVID-19's impact on women? And looking also at the tightened measures, are there areas of concern we should pay specific attention to? What sort of support do you hope to see in place as well? Yep. So COVID-19, yeah, well, not, it looks like it's going to take some time before we see the end of that. Uh, but one thing, a few things came out 
uh, specifically in relation to women. One was care and how we saw the care needs, like, you know, really uh, right before our eyes in our homes, right? Like, as I was saying in my lecture, uh, it became very, very clear uh, that there were a lot of care needs that in our day-to-day -day life, you know, it, it was happening because other people were taking care of it. Uh, but that's just really um, how essential it is. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that things like childcare, elder care, are seen as essential services, but n are not really treated as very important services. They don't even have a progressive wage model for these uh, industries, for example. So the pay is quite low, right? Especially elder care. So we had a scheme where we would uh, uh, recruit and train women for childcare and elder care. A lot more people uh, took up the childcare work than the elder care because of the pay. Right, so, one is uh, we will see these care needs again intensify uh, and parents may have to be, if we are in lockdown again, it will be a repeat of that situation. Maybe it's better the second time round because we already know what to expect, mm -hmm. right? But we will see those care needs really intensify and emerge and, and parents will struggle in their homes. The other thing we saw was domestic violence. Uh, sharp rise in our helpline calls uh, on domestic violence as people were, you know, domestic violence is about domination and power and control. And so uh, when people could not get out of their homes and everyone had to stay there and maybe the stress was high, it just gave rise to a lot more domestic violence. So we could expect that if we have another lockdown. In the current situation, you know, if we can still get out of the house, it may not give rise uh, to so much domestic violence. Um, the work situation for uh, like the F&B uh, industry, for example, any industries that have to shut down even for a short time, and especially if they have low-income families who have very thin safety nets, they have hardly any savings. So a shutdown for them is really, you know, they're living hand to mouth. It has huge impacts. The government was great in coming in with very quickly, right? And this is one of the things that we hope to see again. If we get to that situation, can we make sure that that immediate lifeline is there, right? For the people who really need it. And now that we have had some experience with actually giving this sort of financial support quite quickly, I think, again, the second time will be better. The first time there were people like this uh, self-employed scheme struggling with the forms, right? There was a lot of confusion. The servers hung, all these things happened. But um, that was a learning experience. Uh, and really, the government did really well in just making sure that they were there and they were generous enough right, to, to support those immediate needs. Um, things like elder care you know, was tricky because uh, the centres closed, mm. uh, the, the community care centres. So the caregivers at home were like, oh, I think they were really suffering because there was no place that they could actually you know, take their uh, relative to go to for the day. 
So yeah, care needs are going to again intensify, and it's the family members, no choice. The family members will have to uh, support, will do do it. Yeah, but this is where we realize how important it is to have that care infrastructure. Just to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the lecture and the questions that are coming in from yep. online. Um, so your proposal to have uh, increasing the amount of father's leave entitlement to three months. There's yep. a question here about whether, why not propose the increase of father's entitlement to four months such that it's equal to mother's? Why three? Yeah, you know, I struggled back and forth and I, I, this was the part that I, I, I would love to suggest for, but it is not realistic at this point. To go from two weeks to four months, and you know, I, I did speak to quite a few people about this, including people who ran small businesses, and they're like, how, how will we survive if you know, the man and the woman all go on leave? There is not uh, currently, we need more things in place first. Mm. Right? And how do these countries that have one year leave, how do they do it? So there is a much stronger, much more robust part-time or interim or temporary sort of contract work industry mm. for every type of industry that is that kind of work. Right? And there are people who just specialize in actually uh, providing, you know, matching you when you need a maternity cover. Right? So there are people who, who just do this, maternity, maternity covers, right? uh, lawyers who are just co always just covering for people. So you need to have those things in place, it's a bit chicken and egg, but I think if we just did it now, it would be very difficult. Also the funding is an issue. Right? Um, so I've been looking at funding models as well, and interestingly, the best practice is not really what we have. The best practice, according to, I think it was the ILO, is something called employment insurance. Mm. So it is that the employer, just so that the employer doesn't bear the full burden of giving this leave, because this leave, the country wants it, country wants babies, uh, the employees want it, but the employer doesn't really get to gain as much. So they are reluctant, right? They will do it, but they're reluctant. So even to say, can we have elder care leave for three days? MOM will say, the employers say no, they can't, right? This year is a bad year, it's already very bad for them in other ways, so we cannot. So we are sort of held ransom by employers because they can't. So I think we have to look at different funding models. So insurance, uh, this employment insurance is that the employee pays say 0.5% or 1% and the employer pays as well. It funds all the leave, not just uh, a parenting leave. Family leave, you know, leave for single par for single persons as well. It just goes into this pool, and the government also can top up, right? Mm. So it's sort of spread out more, and it's not like you know, you, bad luck this year. Three persons. I'm a small company. Three persons went on leave. It's a big hit to my bottom line, right? So I think we need to look at all of these things before we can save four months. So much as I would like to, that's why I said we should ultimately work towards that. But for now, I think this is what we can manage. And even this, I think, is a stretch, but I think we can do it. Because not a lot of people, a lot of men, will take all two months, mm. right? So I think, you know, it will be a phased approach. It will be a naturally phased approach as people get used to this. But those who want it, we should go for it, right? 
Yeah. So do you expect that success would be more men taking leave? Yes. And if so, then why not let families choose? Because ultimately, families have a diversity of choices and the men and women make a decision oh, based no. on, so on we, circumstances. That more men take the, like, four to two? I mean, the women still get the same, right? The women will still get four and the men will get two, right? Uh, three and three, I think, you know, some families will do it. But more likely, uh, if the men take it, they'll probably do four and two. Because again, I think women are anchored to the four months already, right? We're like, okay, hey, this is mine. Four months is mine. But you know, the man now oh, has three. I, I, I purposely made it like four and three, but capped at six because I didn't want the man to be seen as like, uh, can you please give me some leave, right? That's the woman's leave. Just leave it. I mean, going back to the intent of this gender equality solution, yeah. the problem you've identified, or at least the ideal that we want to reach towards, is having more children and more babies. Yes. And so this is a relevant question here, where um, the question therefore is, why do we assume that the way to do that is to help women manage caregiving needs for children, for newly born children? Um, there's a comment here from Oh King Seong saying, Compared to 10 years ago, actually, fewer Singapore women are getting married and married women have a total fertility rate that's near replacement. Do you think, therefore, that the focus should be on encouraging more marriages or more women getting married instead? Yeah, upstream? I did see some research on this and they said, you know, the, the sort of, you're trying to solve the same problem. The people who are not getting married, it's because they don't want to have kids. Also, So actually, it's all tied up. So it's not necessarily that you treat the two as different pools. Right? You just need to make like having a family a very happy thing right? so that people will like, get married. Because if you are not planning to have children, then you're like, okay, you know, getting married or not, if I re meet the right guy, that's good. But I'm not actually going to be so active doing it. Right? Mm -hmm. So then they focus on their career. Yes. So it's not so different. Right? I think that what we're doing now, I mean, the proposal, will actually uh, help the people who are not actively thinking of families because it's so difficult right, to think about having a family. So it's two pieces of the puzzle? Uh, I think it, with this, we're trying to solve the same uh, problem. Right? The, the main issue is it's too difficult to have families. So people don't need to get married. They're not getting married. Right? Then the people who are married, are they having their two or three kids which you want them to have? Or that, that they want to have? Right? And so... I, I still feel like it is all about making it easier to have families. Related to that also is um, a question about how much value we place on home responsibilities and caregiving. Mm -hmm. So a related question here um, comes from Madilha Abda and she asks us, should housewives be compensated for household and caregiving work, which she says is essentially unpaid labour? Yep. And how feasible do you think such a policy would be in Singapore? Yep. Uh, this one is quite a contentious one uh, in relation to childcare, I feel. Um, Why is it contentious? It's, okay, some Nordic countries have done it. It's contentious because we actually do want to encourage women to work. Because there are many benefits to being able to, you know, go out there, work, build your networks, build your skills, all of that. It's, it's a better position for the women at the end of the day. 
And so some of the uh, countries have found that if we give this caregiving uh, allowance, then more women actually just stay at home, mm. which makes them maybe less equal, right? Uh, it, it weakens the, the whole positioning. I feel differently about elder care, right? The women who are giving up work, they would not give up work and they're giving up work at this point when they actually should be building their savings. I feel that that group, we should seriously consider this proposal, right? That we, there is a caregiver allowance. Because we, we should understand that if we don't do it now, we might have to do it later when they are 70 or 80 and they don't have money. Right? So it's actually better to just support them now and recognize that they are doing something. If they weren't doing it, we would need more nursing homes, etc. We would need more infrastructure. But all of Singapore wants people to age in place. Mm -hmm. So, as a society, I think we can actually have a justification for this. And the, the argument about, you know, they should be working rather than staying at home doesn't so much apply to this group, right? They've already been working for a long time. So, what do you make of the discussions last week in Parliament? This question came um, from our Facebook follower also. She asked us how, in this week's debate, there was an exchange of views um, on the Singer Act, as you recall between TPM Heng Sui Kiet and some members of the opposition. And uh, there was a discussion about whether we should redefine infrastructure to include human capital and social policies. Right. So her question is, how would you respond to that? And would you make a case for the inclusion of caregiving in infrastructure spending? Uh, I'm not sure what the significance of making it in Singapore, a part of the infrastructure you know, expenditure. But I think caregiving is infrastructure, right? That's, that is my thesis for my lecture. We have to treat it, and when I say infrastructure, I mean it is fundamental. Uh, just like education is infrastructure to me, right? So yes, it is about services and it's about human capital. So yes, if that's answering the question, I'm not sure what the significance is though, if we say it is infrastructure, does it mean it will have more money, mm. right? But I, I think what's important is to see it as so fundamental to the health of our economy that we are willing to put more, invest more into it, right? Knowing that we don't, the economy and the society will suffer. So of course, another way to look at it also is how much do we pay um, caregiving and roles that are considered um, feminine. This question comes to us from Sarah Tanning. She asks us, and her comment is um, due to, in part to the what she calls the feminization of industries. For example, yep. caregiving, yep. education, hospitality. Um, do you think more needs to be done to address this refusal to give recognition and wages to what is essentially women's work? Absolutely, right? So if, it's, if that's what it is, that we need to see it as infrastructure, this work is just so devalued, right? Why is childcare and worse, elder care, so poorly paid? Mm. Why is it it on the PWM, right? Even though we think of it as essential services. Uh, so, I, you know, I think there is a pattern of this. That's why I was trying to draw from our childcare experience to our elder care experience. We just see this and it continues, this sort of undervaluing, right? 
Um, but how do you square off the dilemma that that could increase costs? Yes, it will increase cost. We have to pay for this. So somehow we have to fund this, right? Like I said, we as a society, we have, it's a, you know, we're so used to not, um, and one of the problems is because of the solutions that we've had with like domestic workers, it's completely devalued care. That work now is worth so little and everything else, childcare, etc. the base, they're comparing it to having a domestic worker. Because we went for that cheap solution, which has no future, the domestic worker doesn't build skills that contributes to the economy. If we had not relied on that and we said, we need to have professional care, more professionalized care, we could have built that, you know, more of a professional care industry. Uh, but now, you know, we are a little bit uh, hampered by the fact that we have very cheap uh, sources of care. So a lot of things need to change. The other thing about the domestic worker solution, not only is it hampering the growth of our other care industries, it's also, I think, a very risky thing to rely on the supply of domestic workers, which you ultimately do not control. It's like you want to have the, your own your control over your water supplies. It's because it is basic to life. We really would like to build, we should try to build a more robust local infrastructure, right? Uh, if we have to rely on outside and we will have to then let it be higher end, right? Skills that are coming in. You know, we do this for every single uh, other part of our economy. We say skills, right? We are looking for skills. And you come in and, you know, we are very mindful about how many people we let in. But we don't do this. We, you know, when you see the stats, no one ever, it's always like excluding domestic workers because that is like no control. And so, I don't know, I mean, this part needs to be fixed and it is actually a structural problem. Well, you made a really strong case for government to invest in this area yeah. and government to focus and double down on the care economy. Yes. So, a question therefore that's related is, in addition to these policy moves that you've already set out, what do you think is the role of community and business that can improve the attention and the value of the care economy or have you given up on the role of the private sector there? No, I'm not. No, I, and I don't see it as so uh, separate, right? So with childcare, there's a lot of childcare uh, providers, but um, some are VWO, some are private. The government funds and they control the standards. They also do, you know, offer the training institutes, etc. right? They, they, they control uh, a large part of it, but actually the business activity is still done by private players. So I think it is important to have both. I certainly don't think that government should be providing these services. It's way too much, right? So it is, it is that they play this role of working with the private sector. Um, and they will determine, you know, how much, what needs we have and, you know, where we need to grow um, the provisions. So I'm reminded that it's about 5.30, but would you mind if we take maybe Not one or two all. more questions? Yeah. 
um, we've talked a lot about the various aspects of gender equality, but then this question also raises a much larger one, which is how much of this is about culture? And so this question from Constance Singham asks us, um, I have a concern. It seems like Singapore's corporate-centric culture and values play a huge part in why some may avoid caregiving work. And Singapore's working hours are some of the longest in the world and does not give time for a social life, a family life. What do you think we can do about that? Yep. Thanks, Big Connie. Question. <laughs> it's a great question. Of course, Connie would ask it. Um, it is absolutely true, right? We are struggling when I say that's why caring economy, right? We need both. I think we're too skewed to economy and we have really neglected the caring part and we need a better balance in society. I don't know, this goes well beyond um, like small things you do, but because it, it is about working hours, how are we going to deal with that? Because the, it's also like it's globalization, it is capitalism, neoliberal systems gone like it just gets faster and more intense right life 20 years ago if you remember <laughs> i don't know when you started work yes i still remember thank you very was much slower right it was different but it was not so like oh it's so intense now right we didn't have many devices we didn't have so many devices of course we didn't have those devices that you know now you never turn off yeah. right so how do we deal with this i mean some countries have put down rules, right? No texts after 8pm. Yeah, you know, I mean, we as a society have to want that. I think at the end of the day, yes, there is that whole, I, I don't know, you know, there's a whole corporate momentum that is hard to stop. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much people can do. Climate change offers a little bit of, you know, there is a crisis coming up. The young people care more because it is their future. And at some point, will, we, will this stop us? You know, will it sort of cause some of us to pause, to say, we can't go on, it's not sustainable. Right. So, yeah, this is uh, a global issue. And I said, so I said, Singapore and the world must find some ways of really... Uh, working in a different way, yeah, more sustainably. Last question then. Yeah. Um, so this comes to us from Suen Mu, who asks, what do you think are the key mindset changes that the government needs to adopt in order for your proposals to be feasible and hopefully implemented? I suppose she's asking because you've got quite a few to chew on right. tonight. <laughs> um, key mindset change. I try to uh, in a way do this lecture so that I wasn't so radical in changing the way I think that the government works which is it really is a very pragmatic government right so I've used that pragmatism there's some limits to it right just being pragmatic all the time I, I think we have to talk about the values and so I showed that last video because I think that it just shows us what caring means, what dignity means. And, you know, we have to see it and we have to want it as people. And so um, 
mindset shift for government, I don't know that, I mean, I, I hope that we have, we've made a compelling case today to say, please do not undervalue care because it is very important for the economy, stability, society, right, long term. Um, for the people, I think we have to start thinking about what is important to our society. So when it comes to taxes, for example, right, if I say, if we need to, we pay more tax. That's us paying because we feel these values are important. We want to age well. We, you know, if that becomes more important, and what's interesting is that the older generation becomes the largest cohort of people, right? They will be the voters of, of the next elections and, you know, they will have a say. So they're going to like, okay, you know, we, we, we want better, whatever, you know. It's, it, in the, at the end of the day, I think the, it's the people, yeah, for fundamental shifts. Karina, thanks so much. You're welcome. Drawing this to a close. It was very nice talking to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your feedback on the event. Please click our link in the Facebook feed to submit any of your views and feedback. Karina's third and final lecture will be titled Reset Men, Women, Violence, and it will take place on the 24th of May, which marks the, the 60th anniversary of the passing of the Women's Charter. We hope to see you then, and details will be on our website and Facebook page. Thank you all for attending this afternoon's lecture, and have a good evening ahead. Thank you.